and where I landed was really two paths, right? It was like I could either get an MBA and then a finance job in New York uh, to pursue that capital markets peak or on the tech side, go to Stanford and build a network uh, in Silicon Valley. And then I figured why choose? So I just went ahead and did both. And, you know, I think the bigger point here is you need to always be taking action and making bold moves to better your potential outlook for opportunities, uh, but also be thoughtful of what you stand to gain from doing that publicly. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoff where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. Taking the leap, moving from a fulfilling career in an established company to start your own firm. Lots of us think about it, few do it, and fewer still succeed. I'm excited today to welcome Phil Mohabir, founder of Vivo Surgery, which enables medical students to learn virtually from surgeons performing live cases. Phil is an excellent example of how to accelerate your career by making bold, but strategic moves that increase your influence and power. His actions dramatically accelerated his career at IMAX and created great career options, which led him to launch Vivo Surgery. Phil hails from Toronto, Canada, holds an MBA from the Rotman School of Business in Toronto, where he was a Bregman Scholar, and stood out in the lead executive education program at Stanford Business School. Phil, first, huge congratulations on launching Bevo Surgery, and welcome to 97% Effective. That was a great intro. Thanks for having me, Michael. I'm really glad we could make this happen. Yeah, I'm super excited because I know how busy you have been, particularly in the last few months. It's actually a little bit hard to find in-depth information about you on the internet. That may be because you were in corporate and also in stealth mode as you've just launched uh, Bevo Surgery. What's one important thing as we get started that you'd like listeners to know about you? Um, I would say if I want to elaborate a little bit more actually on, you know, why you probably aren't going to find too much on the internet about me, uh, that was very much intentional. I'd say like I don't have a large online presence because for the longest time I felt like I was still finding my voice, mm. finding what my personal brand was. Um, and I think doing that publicly would have forced me to anchor on ideas and positions when it was probably more beneficial to be able to evolve my positions as I was widening my outlook and gaining uh, newer experiences as I was experimenting with things. And like for context, like I grew up with the idea that peak ambition or the best thing you could do at your career is become either a doctor or a lawyer. 
But after a few years in the corporate world, like these two new peaks suddenly emerged uh, in my visage. Like one was uh, being involved in capital markets. The other was uh, getting into tech entrepreneurship. Um, but unfortunately, on paper, like there's this big gap between what my professional experience was and what I would need to have to get access to either of those worlds. Um, and, and, you know, because I'd be starting this journey of changing my outlook later on in my career, I thought it was especially important to stay quietly focused and level up on credentials that could serve as mental shortcuts for people to trust me with access to those two new worlds. And where I landed was really two paths, right? It was like, I could either uh, get an MBA and then a finance job in New York uh, to pursue that capital markets peak, or on the tech side, go to Stanford and build a network uh, in Silicon Valley. And then I figured why choose? So I just went ahead and did both. Um, and you know, I think the bigger point here is you need to always be taking action and making bold moves uh, to better your potential outlook for opportunities, uh, but also be thoughtful of what you stand to gain from doing that publicly. That's a brilliant point right out of the gate. Um, thinking about how not to be confined to the pre-written script and also what might be the shortcuts that you need to make new things happen. I, I mean, essentially, <laughs> you've just discussed how innovation occurs, right? It's about how these new ideas are conceived, but also how they gain traction and, and take off. Absolutely. Let's start with your career at IMAX. So IMAX, for those who are not aware, basically redefined the whole high-definition movie theater experience. And you spent a large bulk of your early career there, large organization. Some of the things you did are pretty obvious and, and par for the course for high achievers, right? You're sharp. You did multiple roles, had great relationships with your bosses. You did great work. You led international development expansion. And of course, this continual learning and curiosity you talked about from your work at Stanford and Rotman. Would love it if you could share, though, some of the very savvy things that you did that, that some people don't even think about, let, let alone do, that really helped elevate you there at IMAX. Yeah, I'm... I'd say, you know, let's definitely not discount being a high performer, like you said, but those are like the baseline. Uh, those are table stakes, being a high performer. What I found really gave me an edge um, was really getting noticed by people who were in positions of power. And once I had their attention, making sure I was being noticed for the right reasons. And I, I had to be very deliberate with my actions to do that. And if I had to really think about the point where my career really accelerated. Um, it started my desire to get this perfect performance rating at IMAX. And you know, the backstory there is since I started my corporate career, no matter what operations records I would shatter that year, um, I was always one shy of a perfect year in performance review. And when I inquired about this, I learned that I was being curved down um, and was told that it's only the top 1% of the company that really gets perfect. And even then, it has to go in front of senior management for approval. And at the end of the day, like I, you, you know, I was already in the top bracket for bonus eligibility with 
that curved down score. So I didn't really push, but then not sure what the drive was. It was more of, I, I again, back to the curiosity of seeing how far can I take it? I really wanted to, to get that recognition and get noticed. So I made the bold move of going to my boss and saying, you know, you told me it's only the 1% that gets into, uh, gets that perfect score. I want to do that. I want to achieve that this year. Can you let me know what the criteria is? What's your bar? So I know when I've exceeded it. Um, and he actually was very honest in telling me that he didn't himself know what that criteria was. And rather than using that as a, a reason to stop the conversation and step back again, being bold, I leaned into it and I said, you know, this is important to me. Could you find out um, who knows what that criteria is? And on top of that, let's regroup in two weeks so we can drop a plan. Uh, and this was me being really agentic towards my own success, like not waiting on somebody else to recognize it, but taking charge of, of again, getting noticed and, and, and being seen the way that I want to be seen. Um, so he actually went to my HR partner uh, to communicate this desire and maybe just a little segue there, it, you know, I have to say it always helps having a great boss that wants to see you succeed um, and having those internal champions that become allies that that take an interest in you performing well and doing well. Um, but this led me to working closely with my HR partner. Um, and this this actually, that relationship became this channel where I could take a more active role in spotlighting the value drivers, the bigger value drivers in the organization that I was influencing from my specific decisions and process improvements. And really, this helped me shape my narrative um, in a place that it mattered, and it allowed me to differentiate myself uh, visibly. And in the end, having those strategic allies was what allowed me to not only get a perfect score at the end of the year, uh, but also get on the radar of senior management as a high impact performer. You've touched on so many points there. And and one thing that came through that I'd point out also is not only differentiating and kind of putting people on notice, but almost getting the top people to really take notice and even highlight to you the, some of the drivers that really mattered to them or really distinguish the top 1%, almost this kind of co-creation process of things that ultimately were, were a huge impact on the organization, kind of beyond any one or, you know, person, so to speak. That's right. It's like, I think once you get that confidence that you're going to succeed wherever you go, um, just because you have the track record for it, you want to go to places where your decisions and your actions can just blossom into even more value for the organization. And I, it's almost like that noble pursuit is what allowed other people to get on board with the idea and open some of those doors for me. Yeah. Can you also talk about how you leveraged some of your executive education experience? Lots of you know mid-senior career executives go to these great programs, but don't think of some other dimensions by which they can utilize those programs, the brand or information they learn. Yeah, I, I'd say with Stanford, you know, Stanford has made a name for itself with uh, design thinking. Um, so you, from doing that program, you walk away with uh, 
kind of that under your tool belt. And that was for me an opportunity to have conversations with people and teach them something new, kind of do these lunch sessions where you can bring other senior leaders that you don't normally communicate with and share an idea and just see how it jives with them and kind of build fellowship around that. Um, but another thing I did, I, I think, as a extension of what I was doing in the power course when I was doing that at Stanford. And, you know, it's the same course that I'm actually um, facilitating for the MBAs today, but I, I developed these things called um, leadership interviews. And what this was, was an excuse for me to not only socialize to people that I was trying to better myself being part or associated with um, a, a very credible institution, but it gave me an opportunity to really get to know people and be intentional about showing them um, my wider knowledge uh, that extended beyond my job description when I was having those conversations with them in the way that I curated the questions I would ask. Um, and I was very, I was very strategic in doing that, particularly with two questions. Um, the first question I would ask people would be to uh, tell me about a time when uh, they they had a position, everybody was against them, um, but they stuck to their guns and then it worked out remarkably. And I, I told them, you know, can you walk me through that? Because it's important to know how to navigate conflict as you grow in, into positions of leadership. Um, what was it like in that moment when you were kind of a contrarian before the word being a contrarian was cool? Um, and I think what that does is it gets them to relive this glory day moment with you. And through that, you get like a positive affiliation um, by having the conversation with them. And then that led me into going into my second uh, question, which was something I customized for each person I spoke with. And here was where I would ask them something that would somewhat demonstrate how I would utilize some insight relative to their day-to-day -day, um, if I had some decision-making with it. So I would almost lead them with the question of, here's what I do now that I've seen X happen. What are your thoughts on that? And that allowed us to talk about something that they're clearly passionate about, but in a way where I was at their level engaging with them, which I think was particularly important. And ultimately, that helped me uh, take more control of what my internal brand was in the organization. Those two questions are amazing. And I know a lot of executives who have benefited from seeing how you have done that. A question that often comes up, oh, I've got to make time to go interview people on top of my already busy job. How do you make time for it? For me, it's just chunking out the time, right? It's mm -hmm. We're all busy, of course. Uh, but for me, it was really just being intentional and thoughtful and knowing that this was important. It's important to build relationships in your organization, especially with people who can open doors with you. It's important to have that visibility with them. Um, one of the things we talk about is to benefit or reap the benefits of like the mere exposure effect of like when people who make decisions for new opportunities are thinking who to put into those opportunities. So long as you're in their mind, at least you're a contender um, for that. If you're not making the time to have conversations and build relationships with them, you never get on the short list. Um, so being intentional about what that end might look like, and it, it helps you figure out why it's important to allocate the time to do these activities that are beyond your day-to-day. -day. So you ha already had the table stakes, you know, high performing, doing great work. And then on top of that, you really accelerated things through these two examples you just gave. That did open up a lot of very interesting internal moves. 
and you chose investor relations. Investor relations isn't the most intuitive path <laughs> that most people would say, ah, this is the area to kind of go you know, seize and master next. Can you share why you chose to go into IR and, and how that's helped you? Absolutely. Um, you know, of course, I did get quite a few internal offers, great internal offers, uh, because of these activities that I was doing. Uh, I, I ultimately wanted investor relations for two main reasons. I, I, as I hinted earlier, the first is like that that peak, one of the two peaks I mentioned, which was um, the finance job in New York. I think I could credibly check that box off uh, simply by having that on my resume and getting the experience that comes with it, the, the more crystallized knowledge uh, that you would get from that being your day-to-day. -day. Uh, but the second and maybe less obvious reason would be more to do with uh, benefiting from like the osmosis that comes with being in that environment. And you know what I mean by that is if on a day-to-day -day basis you're directly in interacting with the C-suite, you kind of see firsthand what their habits are uh, that are effective and it's a really quick way to learn you know what you should be imitating to train yourself to have similar behaviors as people who are in these high caliber positions uh, so the access that came with investor relations was particularly important um for me and you know it, it wasn't i think as i'm thinking more of uh having that mindset of going towards the other peak of getting like a leadership role in uh tech entrepreneurship, uh, one of the things I recognized as well is that I need to work on my own executive presence. Um, so what better way than to surround yourself with executives and, and just sponge off of the way that they think or prepare for a meeting or how they're able to occupy space um, during an important conversation and pick up on those things so that it became part of uh, my playbook. Um, and if I look at it that way, it, it's almost deliberate as this kind of served as um, a bridge to get me to where I wanted to go with the next stage of my career. Yeah, it's a lot like, you know, I would say, you know, playing with the top 10 tennis players in the world or being in the Champions League. When you're at that level, always surrounded by those individuals, there is some of that learning by osmosis, but it forces you to always pick up and play your A game. Now, Phil, I, I know you fairly well. You're an amazing writer, very crisp and concise as a communicator. So can you share when you took that job? You were already doing a lot of things around communication and presence already pretty well. One or two things that you shifted even more from that experience, maybe one around executive presence, one around communication? Going into investor relations, I think one of the best quotes I got that was passed down to me by my boss there was, you've got to think in paragraphs, but speak in bullet points. Um, and that really resonated with me with this need to be more concise um, in the way that I actually speak and communicate an idea uh, because, as you mentioned, I, I'm good when it comes to writing things out and having that time to edit it, but I never really spent a lot of time practicing how I presented or how I showed up uh, when it came time to actually speak uh, on matters. So kind of tagging that into the whole idea of occupying space, 
you treat it like you're almost in this privileged position to be in those rooms with people that are so senior. Um, so it's important to be sharp and, and be really on the point with what it is that you occupy their space with. And that's, that's probably the biggest habit I picked up from being in the uh, IR space that I'm probably going to take with me uh, for the rest of my life at any other place that I go. And I imagine as a founder, you probably do a lot of investor pitches, pitches to key early customers. You're bringing that element into what you do as a founder as well? Definitely. That's uh, that's essential. It's communicating like what is the value proposition or being able to answer um, an investor question on what your business is or what the fundamentals of it in multiple ways um, before they've even asked the question. So I, I'm going through the intellectual rigor of prepping for that, um, putting myself in, in their shoes uh, as I'm constructing what I think my answers need to be. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoth. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. The other point here, which we touched on earlier, was that you don't come across as this massive out there networker. Uh, definitely, you don't have the huge kind of public branding that we talked about before or an online presence. But I know that you're very conscious, you know, of, of how these two factors propel you. Um, and you've thought about these a lot in your situation. Can you share a little bit about that? I, I think for me, like, what uh, I really like this Steve Jobs quote that you can't connect the dots looking forward. And for me, um, just looking at the experience I had around me, like I had all these dots uh, to my name, but I wasn't sure how that could be arranged into a cohesive personal brand. Um, and like when I, I think about the best personal brands out there, they tend to be these rally points for others to join in on a big, meaningful mission. And I didn't think I had that. So I didn't really feel that there was a need to have strong opinions out there or even controversial ones to draw attention to me. Um, I was just kind of quietly playing it safe, but paying attention uh, to things. Um, and at the end of the day, I, it doesn't mean that I wasn't quietly networking to access new types of resources and information behind the scenes. Um, and as I kind of alluded in my earlier remarks, it was like I was in this place where I'm building a wider vantage of what's out there. So if I'm going to see how far I'm going to go, it, it's in the right arenas. Um, and, and now like I look back on things. So like the, the whole quote is like, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You do it looking backwards. So looking backwards as I'm connecting these dots, it's almost comical how things have somehow aligned themselves to make sense. Um, you think about it, like with Vivo Surgery, I, I'm leading a surgical training startup that uses technology to democratize access to learn from live operating rooms and you consider i was a pre-med student with a focus on neuroscience i got distracted from going to med school because i got into a visual technology company right as it hockey sticked uh, and then i started moonlighting instructing online education at stanford and then i was like differentiating myself with my mba because i figured out i had this knack for cross-pollination innovation and that came simply because i was speaking to hundreds of executives for four years straight with Stanford, and I was like noticing these problems and taking the experience I had 
Navy department to figure out, okay, like what is the key insight there in the solution and how can you apply it into a completely different market? And it seems like all of these things have now accumulated to me being exactly where I need to be. So moving forward, um, I, I public presence um, for myself, especially as I think I found where I'm landing with my personal brand is that of an outsider looking into health equity. And ultimately, like if it's the mission or the rally point, it's like I, I as an outsider, I think we need more outsiders uh, to join in on fixing these legacy problems that have festered from restricted and privileged access to solving the problems within healthcare. Yeah, your reflection there makes me think a lot about David Epstein's book, Range, where he talks about how generalists, we can even say outsiders or cross-pollinators, and can add the most, whether that's research, innovation, um, compared to experts. You mentioned a point around quietly networking. And what are some examples of the quiet networking you were doing? Quietly networking by that, I mean, I, I wasn't necessarily going to like networking mixers or being in formal places for it, but I was still maximizing my personal reach on LinkedIn, um, being bold into reaching out and maybe even putting out like a uh, to people about what I was interested in. Um, I, I definitely employed a lot of flattery. Like I would spend time reading through someone's LinkedIn and figure out what they did in their career. And my approach to them, if it was like a cold email or a cold message, was around something I was impressed by what I saw and asking if they could tell me something more about how they achieved that because it it, it had some benefit to what I was trying to achieve. And that allowed me to make more deeper qualitative um, connections. Uh, and that's kind of what I needed at that point, because remember the goal was figuring out what's out there uh, so I can learn a little deeper, uh, both broader and deeper. But to a sense, I think I was starting to funnel what my outreach was doing towards the things that I was really liking and resonating well with. So that type of quiet networking uh, served me quite well. Um, and I didn't need to have that outward public brand to, to pull people in or pull resources in uh, at that time. Be very thoughtful um, in terms of the approach. Let's shift to Vivo Surgery, because I know you're super excited about that some of the things we've talked about, what's translated over and most helped in the founding and scaling? And I believe you're already profitable, so congratulations. Economics matters, um, I think, especially in the climate that we're in right now. Uh, you need to have good positive unit economics uh, if you're going to, to make it these days. But, I th but two things that, that really translated well for me, um, I'd say the first is the power that comes from just being able to ask for things I, and you know as we were talking about just being bold how i asked my boss uh to, to this is important to me can you find out what the the steps are who knows uh the secret of the criteria this has been like so beneficial um for what i'm trying to accomplish with vivo surgery asking for things and you know the logic there is 
people are ter- terrible mind readers and we underestimate their willingness to help us, if nothing else, simply for their own need to see themselves as benevolent. Um, so I haven't really held back when it comes to asking for what I need to make vivo surgery successful. Um, and then the second would be uh, to show up with that same executive presence that I'm talking, I was talking about, not just, you know, not just be smart, but present yourself um, with a certain level of authority. Uh, what I, I, I've quickly learned being in the health space is that there rarely is a single decision maker that you're interacting with. Often it's like a committee decision and that committee is just being formed to make that decision. Um, so when you're dealing with that type of back and forth, it requires you to show up with a certain level of authority uh, because they're expecting you to, uh, or you're actually expecting them to buy into an idea that doesn't have a precedence or for them to benchmark against. And it's important to not accept no from those committees simply because there isn't a comparable decision. Um, so rather, I, I spend the extra time to untangle what the core concerns are to ensure there is something in place to mitigate those risks if necessary to ensure that we proceed. Were there, were there other, also other lessons, influence that, that helped Vivo get off the ground? It's a little tricky because Power is all about breaking the rules, and in the health space, most of the rules are there for good reason. Um, so you have to be a little thoughtful when you're navigating that. And what's really benefited me, and I think what I hinted to prior, is um, what I learn in terms of how to deal with conflict and setbacks. Um, everything from internally negotiating the shareholders' agreement with my business partners to thinking about what the VCs on the other side of the table would want to see when we eventually raise capital because you know part of managing conflict is figuring out what the win-win situation is before you even have the conversation uh, so that's helped me particularly well and i'm always looking for mutual wins um, because of those learnings uh, and especially as we've you know de-risked the things that we have bootstrapping our way to where we are today that's a really insightful point around thinking about the win-win yet still breaking the rules. So you mentioned that the moonlighting you do at Stanford as an executive coach in executive education, as a coach around power and influence, um, and working with individuals who are grappling with how to build it, how to come to terms with it. What would you say are the two biggest barriers that, that most people encounter? If I was to say we like assume we've already gotten them past the first big barrier, which is just to be more agentic towards their own success and try out some of these behaviors that they're not necessarily comfortable with for building power and influence, uh, then the two most prominent barriers would be, uh, I'd say first, helping them build up their capacity for tolerating conflict. And then second would be maintaining the momentum um, of doing these power behaviors when they no longer have the structure of a course to guide them. Yeah, can you say more about those two through that? Conflict, like that's the one that comes up the most. And it's it it's starts by challenging uh, conflict is um, because so many of us see conflict as this binary situation where one side has to win, the other side has to lose. 
And when you're in an organization, that seems counterproductive. Uh, so it's something that management is trying to manage away. Um, so I instead reframe conflict as an opportunity to learn a different point of view. Um, and that ultimately creates a better outcome taking the best parts of all positions and, and just doing something that. And I think at its core, you know, this is Roger Martin's idea of integrative thinking, um, where we're learning to attack ideas and not the people presenting them. And there are two behaviors I encourage to really galvanize this. Like the first is learning to approach criticism with curiosity. Um, which is definitely easier said than done, uh, but something that you can build a muscle for. Uh, and then the second is learning how to steel man arguments. And this is this term that Peter Thiel had coined, where it's the opposite of the straw man fallacy, uh, because you aim to help opponents more eloquently present their position. And because you're doing this, you'll be able to see the gaps in your own position. Um, for the momentum uh, second item, I think that's a little bit more easier. I just tell them hire a coach and I've got a great list of people that I would always recommend to them based on what their outcomes, desired outcomes are. Uh, one of the things I find that is particularly uh, well in this area is kind of this philosophy that I instill, um, which is, you know, recognizing that a fraction of a percent of your life, you're going to be presented with these life-changing opportunities um, but you can only capitalize on them uh, if you're prepared for it. Uh, so logically, what should you be doing the other 99% plus of times that you don't have these serendipitous opportunities? Well, you should be preparing for it. And that seems to, I think, put some meaning behind the importance of persisting even when there's not a, a desired result that has been realized. which is this point around ethics. So as soon as we talk about power influence, most of the examples that first come to mind with people are very negative ones. Dictators, tyrants, some of the CEOs that have run organizations into the ground, but have still done well themselves. Any points of view, because this is a, is a, a really strong point that holds a lot of people back. I won't do this because these are the models I see out there. When you're working with people, any point of view you have here around ethics that you want to raise? Um, in the sense that, you know, I, I do understand that there's such a negative connotation with power because we are quick to remember how people have abused power in the past. Uh, but I, I think what I try and instill in people is this idea that if we are all being forced to play this game, we should all have equal access to the rules and winning strategies of the game uh, and to let that remain only available to a select group um, that would be what's truly unethical um, so that's kind of how i framed it for people and it, it usually gets them over the hurdle of you know past hurt even past trauma that has come from abuse of power and why there is some noble aspect to at the very least be sensitive to how power works in organization dynamics. Um, and if we go even deeper than that, you know, it, then it becomes very nuanced and situational with corner cases and trolley problems and dot exper experiments of whether the end justifies the uh, means. So I think I'll just leave it at that. Have you back in a year or two 
So we can talk about the things that you've done as at Vivo, if we kind of fast forward two years with all the growth, you as the you know, CEO, one of the key um, executives, the things that you've done to really unleash people's power, but not have some of these kind of corrosive or negative effects occur. Question that I didn't ask here that I should have? No, I'm good. I, I'm just happy to be a part of this and I'll definitely take you up on that offer to come back in a year uh, to reflect basically on this conversation and see where we've gotten. So how do people best reach you, Phil, and your work? Students and medical professionals interested in Vivo Surgery, we have a waitlist on our website, and that's www.vivosurgery.com. And we currently have students from more than 200 medical schools on there. Um, so there's definitely a high demand for what it is that we're offering. And I'm always looking for surgeons that are interested in making live surgical education more accessible. So if that's you, you know, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, it's philip mohubir one uh, there's not a lot of Phil Mohabirs or Philip Mohabirs on LinkedIn, so it's pretty easy to find me. Phil Mohabir, fantastic to have you. And let's talk in one to two years about how Vivo Surgery has taken off and the things that you've done there. Congrats, and thank you for joining me at 97% Effective. Amazing. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwinderoth.com. W-E-N-D-E-R-O-T-H dot com.